Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hello, friends. I hope you are all having a wonderful holiday season and a Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. I'm so excited to have you join me this week for another amazing podcast episode. If you're new to the show, I'm so glad that you found us. Welcome. Wellness and Wanderlust is all about helping you create a life you'll love through small, actionable steps. For those who tune in regularly to the show, thank you for being a part of this community and for all of your support. I'm truly grateful to each and every one of you. This week's guest is Ali Smith, the co-founder and executive director of the Holistic Life Foundation. For the past 20 years, the Holistic Life Foundation has been teaching mindfulness techniques, breathwork, and principles of yoga to thousands of at-risk kids in Baltimore schools, guiding them to develop deep reserves of patience, empathy, resolve, and when needed, the righteous anger that fuels deep structural change. Ali and his co-founders also recently published a book, Let Your Light Shine, How Mindfulness Can Empower Children and Rebuild Communities. In our conversation, Ali shares the impactful work of the Holistic Life Foundation and what kids need most from the adults in their lives. We talk about the lessons imparted by Ali's Uncle Will and the importance of meeting people where they're at, ways to strengthen our self-awareness, the practice of loving others from a distance or bhakti yoga, the power of reciprocal teaching, and so much more. I absolutely love the work that Ali and his co-founders are doing and am thrilled to welcome him to the show. So enough from me. Without further ado, let's hear from Ali Smith. Ali, thank you so much for joining us at Wellness and Wanderlust today. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I am so excited to talk about the work that you and the Holistic Life Foundation have done. And before we dive into that, though, I'd love for you to first talk a little bit about yourself. Just tell our listeners a little bit about you. Okay, I'm Ali. I'm from Baltimore, born and raised uh, West Baltimore, to be exact. Uh, went to Friends School of Baltimore. Then went to the University of Maryland College Park, uh, got a degree in environmental science and policy. Meditation, contemplative practice, and yoga were a part of my life growing up. Grew up in a church called the Divine Life Church of Absolute Monism, uh, run by a guy named Cherry Peter, based on Kriya Yoga and the Self-Realization Fellowship principles. Meditated, and my dad was into transcendental meditation. Actually, he was into yoga, but he didn't teach us any at that point. So as a kid, I would do transcendental meditation at home and uh, subjective meditation in church and Sunday school. Got out of the practice when my parents got divorced. So, you know, and then got back into it at the end of college. My godfather and teacher and one of my best friends, uh, Uncle Will, as we call him, uh, was the guy that really, really kind of put me on the path and uh, taught me the stuff that I, I do in my own personal practice that I teach other people today. Well, I think you have such an empowering story. And I grew up with a dad who was really into a lot of the mindfulness and meditation as well. And I think growing up in that environment and seeing that around some of the adults in your life, even if I think a lot of times as we get older, we we kind of fall off of those and maybe getting to college. And at, I think there were times where it was maybe even the weird thing to do um, when it was less, I think, known. And then as you get older, kind of going back to it and finding solace in that and finding that that's something that can really be healing for us. And um, I've really enjoyed, I've been reading your book, learning about Uncle Will and some of his teachings and what you learned from him and your dad. I'd love to know a little bit more about the practice that you had as you got back into it, how it led into the work that you do today. And if you can share a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so Uncle Will is my godfather. Him and my dad were friends since college uh, down at, um, at that time was Maryland State. 
uh, but now it's University of Maryland Eastern Shore. They met there and they, they clicked instantly. So Uncle Will got my dad into yoga from a prostate issue. And um, like he was one of those people that was always into the practice, like got into it in the like early 60s and never, ever got out of it. Um, and I think we went to him because, you know, you're, you're at the end of college, you're searching for answers. You want to know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And, um, you know, we just didn't really have it, find any answers that really suited us. We saw my brother, Atma, saw a Kundalini book by Yogi Bhajan on uh, Uncle Will's altar. Like his entire dining room table was like a giant altar with like books and statues and incense and candles and stuff like that. And, um, you know, he asked about it and we were like, well, we want to learn some of this stuff. He was like, I'll teach you guys, but you guys got to agree to be teachers and uh, you guys got to show up at my place at four o'clock the next morning. So we did. Um, And I remember starting off, it was a very, very physical practice. It was a lot of like Kriya, a lot of Kundalini, a lot of Hatha, things along those lines, like the very physical part of the practice. And then as time went on, the practice got more and more subtle. So like, then we really got into breath work. Then we really got into meditations. And then I'd say for maybe like the last, I don't know, like 10 years or so, probably a little longer, uh, we didn't really get on a mat with him. All of our lessons were around his, uh, he had like this big island in his kitchen uh, with like these high bar stools. And we would sit around there and he would teach us about what yoga was really about. I mean, a lot of people never get past the asanas, you know what I mean? Like, uh, but there's like the eight limbs of yoga, you know, the first two are the ways you should and shouldn't live, should and shouldn't live in your life. The third one is the asanas, and a lot of people don't get past that wrong in the ladder. But then there's pranayama, and then the last four stages are all stages of meditation. So, like, he was always more on the subtle practices, like the jnana, the bhakti, the karma yoga, like all those things that, that are part of, become a part of who you are. Um, they're not something you do. Like, you can't, you, there's something, that, they're part of who you, like, who you are. Like, you have to be those parts of the practice. You have to embody them. And I think that was what was most important to him was, what you do when you're not on your mat and you're out in the world, because it's easy to get caught up in the world and sometimes you're totally blind to it. But uh, if you can have your base in those more subtle forms of the practice, then you can kind of know when you're drifting away and then how to bring yourself back. I think that's so powerful too, because, you know, when we take that time aside for ourselves to, you know, maybe get into the poses, that's really restorative. It's fantastic. But when you're out in the world, I can't just get into a pose when I'm in the middle of a work day or in a stressful environment or anything. And I think a lot of what you write about in your book, it really dives into how we should, you know, as you said, how we should be and rethinking the way we approach the world, I think, in a sense. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, most of the ways that we um, approach the world are very like ego based. You know what I mean? Like that where you mm-hmm. separate yourself from everyone and everything. Um, it's about your experiences and how things are affecting you. And um, you, you ignore that connection that you have with everyone and everything, like the whole universe. And I think you, we end up blaming a lot of the things that are going on, the other people around us. You start to dislike certain things when and actually a lot of those times are things that just like the reflection of yourself you see in other people that you're not happy about within yourself. So, yeah, I think the my teacher, uncle would always say you start your day in the light and end your day in the light. You start your day in the light because that's how you, it's easier to move from the inside out than it is from the outside in. So like you get your base and your true self and then you go function in the world. Yeah, I think I think that's so powerful. And I can definitely relate to, I, I think I think it may have even been your uncle Will in the book saying that 
if you're going to point one finger at one person, you have to point three back at yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've really had to grapple with myself when I've really gone through times where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this person, like just feeling almost like a victim in a sense and kind of taking a step back and thinking about, well, how happy am I in my own life right now? And what am I seeing in them that's really something that I'm personally putting out there that I'm not proud of. And I'm amazed at how often that turns out to be true. So I really loved that particular quote too. Yeah, it's a daily struggle. I think I think a lot of people think that once they start meditating or they start doing some form of contemplative practice that all their all their problems like magically disappear. But that's not how it is. I think it just makes you more aware of what's going on. Uh, and sometimes, again, like it's a daily struggle. Like sometimes you're going to be totally blind to it. And you're going to want to blame those other people. You're not going to see your own fault in those things. But the contemplative practice, I'm, I'm come from a yogic background. So the yogic practice gives you opportunities to look at yourself in the mirror. You know what I mean? Like when you really go deep in, and, 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 above, and beyond like awareness practices that, that, that people call meditation, but like really deep spiritual meditation, like if you take the time to slow down and really go inward, like all your stuff is going to be sitting there staring at you. So you can't really hide from it. You can't ignore it. And I think that's why a lot of people stay away from um, more spiritual forms of meditation because they don't want to deal with their own stuff, but it's just sitting there waiting for you to deal with it. Yeah. I think a lot of times we take the fitness approach to it that I should do yoga because it's going to tone my muscles or whatever it is. And I, I think it's it's great for that too. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I've definitely, if I want to, if, if I'm a little sore, certain practices definitely help with, you know, sitting at a desk all day, for example, but I found that it's been so much more meaningful than that in so many ways, but it's, I think it's really hard to look inward a lot of the time and to notice these things about ourselves. And so much of this, I I mean, I was not personally familiar with bhakti yoga before reading your book, but even just the practice of loving someone from a distance, I mean, that is a deep thing to be thinking about. And I think it's a painful thing for us to be thinking about, but just a lot of these practices really getting quiet and allowing ourselves to reflect, I think, in this way, I think there, there's so much power in it. Yeah, I agree. Um, that, that bhakti yoga practice is... Um... It's very difficult, but it's also very liberating. Uncle Will used to always say that bhakti yoga is the hardest and the easiest form of yoga to practice. It's the easiest because all you have to do is love people. And it's the hardest because all you have to do is love people. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to twist yourself up like a pretzel. Like there's no hard physical rigorous work and you're just loving. So that's easy, but it's also difficult because it's hard to love some people sometimes. Like there are people that piss you off daily, Yeah. Uh, but in bhakti yoga, like the same light that shines in me is the same light in that shot that's shining in that person that's pissing me off. So I have to go beyond, I use their physical form as a reference, but I have to go deeper to love their soul because in, in actuality we're one. And I'm not saying I, I don't do it all the time. There's definitely times where I'll, I'll have to like go back. It'll be halfway through the day. I might have I might have had a negative interaction with someone or a difficult interaction with someone and I'll forget and I'll have to like go back. I didn't see that person's light at all throughout that whole interaction. And that was just a very frictional interaction with that person. But, you know, then you can go back and send them some light. And I think, like you were saying earlier, loving people at a distance is, I think that's the liberating part of it. Because a lot of times there aren't people who need to be in your space. You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. people get caught on like the attraction or like just having to be physically near someone and physically interact with them to love them. But the relationship's not reciprocal. Like you're not gaining anything. It's like you giving and giving and giving. And that, that's not how the universe works. The universe is reciprocal. So eventually it's going to cause you to get frustrated. It's going to break down. And there are also people in your life that just don't have your best interest at heart, that it's easier to just kind of have them at a distance. You know, when they pop up in your mind, you send them some love, you don't send them any ill will. But at the same time, like 
you know, having them in your space is dragging you down and, it, and, it, and it's not really worth it. So I think that, yeah, I definitely think loving people at a distance can be very liberating. It also takes some discipline because we're used to um, thinking love is like uh, more like luster, like physical attraction than actual like universal spiritual love. Yeah. Well, and I've certainly found, I found it to be very liberating when I've had friendships even where I was finding that those friendships were really draining and it took more of my energy to answer their phone call or whatever, because there was so much that was being taken out of me and kind of letting go of those friendships without really any ill will, but just more of the thought that, hey, we're no longer serving each other and I wish you well in the world. And I think that that's been very freeing for me. On the flip side, a little bit with sending that love, I think, you know, you say it's hard. It's true. It's hard to love people sometimes. Now, I uh, live in a place where I was not happy with certain election results not too long ago. And how do we practice like, you know, sending light and love when you truly feel that it's not just we don't get along anymore. We We've outgrown the relationship, but I feel that this person is harmful to me or whatever that may be. It's difficult. I mean, I struggle with it. To I, I'm, I'm like, I meditate daily. I try to get as much. I got my mantra practice going on. I got to do some off the mat practices. And it's something that I struggle with daily, getting people out of your life that, that aren't serving you or aren't lifting you up uh, because attachment, you know what I mean? You get attached to certain people. Like you get, you have the, like those, those stages of infatuation, whether it's a um, intimate partner, whether it's a friend and you feel like you're supposed to have those people around and you don't set up boundaries where you can kind of like shut them off. Cause they're not serving you. Like, well, no, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to keep that person around when it, all it is, is like just sucking your energy out and just kind of destroying it. You know what I mean? So, and I think when you were talking about election results, uncle will, uh, one of his things that he would always do, is like we'd go to his place, he'd be like watching the news and he'd intentionally put on Fox News and he would intentionally watch just, I guess this was when Bush was president and like we were, we were in war and like everybody was pissed off and um, we're like, oh, what are you doing? He'd be like, well, he's like, look, Bhakti Yoga, George Bush's soul is the same as mine. I'm going to sit here and watch him. I'm going to send him as much love as possible because he's under a lot of pressure and he needs love just as much as everybody else. Most people are pissed off at him. So he's got a lot of negative energy. So if I'm a yogi, I should be doing stuff like this. He sounds like such an incredible man. He was he was such a, he was such an incredible dude, and like one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. He was so he was so into music, like just sitting around and listening to him sing mantras and beat on his damaru. A lot of fun was probably the most connected to the yogic practice. Of, I mean, because you know we we've, we've traveled a lot, like we've seen a lot of teachers, but he was the most connected to the yogic practice of of anyone that I've ever met. Or um, had the pleasure of meeting in my entire life. Like he was, uh, he was a wealth of information, and um, he was very good at meeting you where you were. Like you could bring anybody over there to come and talk to him. He would meet them right where they were and give them practices that they could use, but in a way that was going to work for them. I think. I mean, he sounds like someone who really walked the walk, and that's so powerful. I'd love to know with the work that you do, how you know, how did his lessons rub off on you and his way of life? I would say. Um, so I'd say a couple things. One, from that very moment when he said we had to be teachers, he, he the way he said it was, I'm going to teach y'all, but I'm, gonna look, I'm not looking for devotees. I'm looking for people that are going to be teachers. And I think that informed the way that we do our work with the Holistic Life Foundation. Um, we always try to empower people with the practice. Uh, reciprocal teaching is at the forefront of everything that we do. And I think it's why our program is so successful. So every kid that we come in contact with, we not only teach them how to do the practice, we show them how to lead the practices as well, because then they're more likely to go out and use them in their community, in their home, and share them with people that they see suffering. So I think that 
Um, I think having fun with the practice, he would always tell us, he was like, man, if, you, if your students aren't laughing, you're not doing shit. You're not doing, you're not being a good mm-hmm. teacher. And we'd be like, so we try to bring humor and laughter in all of our classes. I think having a diversity in what you can teach, because uh, you can't teach everybody the same thing. Like people are going to, if you really listen to someone with your heart and your soul, like you really attentively listen to them, they're going to tell you exactly what they need if you're trying to teach them uh, spiritual practices. And you got to have something for them. You can't, the same thing isn't going to work with everybody. So I think it's good. I think he, one thing he taught us was there's all these different forms of yoga and one of them is going to speak to somebody and you might have to give them like three or four different things to work on one thing. But if you give them three or four, you know, that, that gives them options. So like they might, you might give them a mudra, you might give them a mantra and you might give them a meditation. You know what I mean? You might give them a breath too. And so like some of them are going to speak to them at different times, but he definitely was definitely a blessing. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think Atman, Andy and I would have gotten into uh, yoga if we weren't learning it from him. Uh, just because of the type of human being that he was, how he related to us, and just how much fun we had, like how much fun he had teaching us and how much fun we had learning from him. I love that. I mean, I think practices like yo, I mean, it can be so, it can almost feel kind of esoteric because you you hear about these concepts and it can be very, they're really big concepts in a sense. And it can be kind of intimidating and it can be really hard to take those concepts and then relate them to things that are going on in your life. I think especially when you're young and maybe when I think like a lot of the the kids that you've worked with have dealt with really serious trauma and to make sense of that at a very young age and find that meaning through this type of work. I mean, that's I, I think to be able to give practices that that make sense in our daily lives and that. I think also that understanding that what works for me might not work for you and what might work for either of us right now might not work tomorrow or in a different situation. I think there's such a gift in knowing how to do that and being able to provide that. Talk to me a little bit then about, so with the Holistic Life Foundation, you're working with kids who, again, they've gone through a lot of times really profound trauma and they're learning these techniques. Talk about how meditation and mindfulness and yogic practices can help kids as they respond to these challenges and going through life. Yeah. So I think we always start with physical movement. And I think the funny thing with us was that like when we first started this, it was 2001 or no, I guess we started our company in 2001. So it was like March of 2002 when we first started teaching. And um, when we started, I remember like we were like dealing with all these kids in West Baltimore at the time. And we were like, man, these are some badass kids. Like, why are all these kids so bad? Because their behavior was off the charts. Like it was it was it was terrible. And uh, we're constantly breaking up fights. Kids were in detention. Like they weren't paying attention. They weren't focusing. And, uh, you know, we're sitting there trying to figure out what's going on. And then as we started to get to know them, and why they were still like defiant in some of the some of the yoga classes that we were doing or whatever we were doing. And I think once we started to see like what was going on in their lives, it was like, okay, uh, some, there's something else here that doesn't have to do with behavior. And then as time went on, people started talking about trauma. We started to understand what that was. But we, we always start with the body, uh, making the body a safe space. Like we always start with physical movement, no matter what, if we're rolling on a mat, whether we're in a classroom and we're sitting in a chair, uh, we understand that like, you know, you got to make the body safe, a safe space or, or it's not going to work. Like it's not going to work going straight to meditation with, with kids who've been traumatized because they're picking up fear messages from everywhere. So their body doesn't feel safe from them. But like in those moments of presence and stillness in the poses, their body slowly starts to become safe for them. And then you can start to move to the other stuff. The breath work, 
uh, after they get to the movement, um, you know, start to slow the mind down. Uh, but I think where a lot of people mess up is they want to take kids right into um, mindfulness meditation and have them sitting there in silence. You know, and that does more harm than good because then like all that trauma starts to come up, like all that, all those thoughts and those feelings start to start to rise up to the top if they're sitting in silence. But we only use guided meditation practice and guided imagery for a really long time with students. And it helps them because they, they learn what inner peace, they learn what inner stillness is. But it's a safe and guided stillness. It's not like that scary vacuum of, of nothingness. It's like a, um, you learn what you know, you learn what inner peace is, you learn to love and connect to yourself. Uh, you learn inner stillness, but it's like, again, it's safe, it's filled, it's not empty. I love that you start with the guided and kind of continue along that path. I've been very much a fan of guided meditation and I will sometimes try to, you know, do more of the silent meditation, but there are times in my life where if, when I'm really going through something, I have found the really silent meditation to be kind of triggering and taking me back to a time that I don't want to be in and maybe having sometimes that guidance to lead me out of that and instead to get still, but to not be surrounded by whatever rumination that comes up because I think that it can be really easy to slide into that without that guidance, especially when you're new to a practice. Oh yeah, and that's where the mind goes. Uncle Willie would always talk about just the, the nature of the mind. He would always say like the mind was a drunk monkey on LSD, like it's all over the place. And like unwatched, your mind's going to go to a negative place every single time. It takes effort for your mind to be in a positive place. Like you have to be constantly feeding it with positive influences, positive thoughts, like that negative self-talk will start to pop in um, and it just kind of start to spiral downward out of control. And that's just what it is. So you have to kind of be vigilant about your mind. So if it is new practice, if it is meditation, even if it's walking through your daily life, just being aware of your thoughts and, um, you know, just catch them as early as you can, as, as early as you can identify them and like switch them to something positive or just you're like, okay, that's a thought. I'm not going to own that thought. I'm not going to identify with it. It's just a thought wave passing through and then you kind of move on to back to your stillness but you need somebody to guide you there like a lot like you were saying like if it's a new practice it's going to be hard for someone to be able to identify with that and say okay hey this is just a thought i'm going to let it pass they, they that thought pops up and they're just kind of going with it that thought's there and the thought's kind of dragging them down and they're totally identifying with it and it's totally disrupting the meditation practice and can lead them to a, a really a really bad place sometimes yeah, I think our minds are such unreliable narrators too. And yeah, when we can really look at a thought a lot less critically and really just more that, yes, this is a thought and now it can pass and kind of just like recognizing it rather than, yeah, I think unguided, it's very easy to have the thought and then just letting it lead to the next thought and the next thought and the next thought and get really convoluted and your mind can take on a mind of its own in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that awareness is so key. And I think as adults, it can be, it can be challenging sometimes that self-awareness even. And I know that you talk about that in the book a little bit too, about how as adults, when we want to be better role models better mentors, support the children in our lives, and just really to, to support anyone in our lives. We have to have our own self-awareness. And I think that can be challenging sometimes. How do we develop that? And wh what are some things we can do to, to work on that? Yeah, because it's definitely something you have to work on constantly. I was just um, mm -hmm. having a conversation with someone. Um, my dad passed away um, the day after Thanksgiving last year. And, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I was kind of just like rolling through life, staying busy, doing this, doing that, distracting myself. And uh, like a year later, like on the Friday after Thanksgiving this year, 
a set and I did a really long, I spent like uh, between Friday and that, and that Saturday, several hours in meditation and reflection. And I, and I realized that Friday, like it, it hit me almost instantly. Like Ali, you are really still sad about your dad. Like you are totally missing everything that's going on right now. Like you are totally unaware of this. So like, despite the fact that I'm sitting there meditating every day, it was like a total blind spot for me where I didn't even realize it. So I think it's constantly taking the time to reflect, having people you can talk to, and um, also having some self-forgiveness because like, I was definitely like kind of beating myself up about it. Like, come on, man, like you meditate every single day. Like, how are you this blind to this? But I think it was just one of those things where it was like, also, you got to have some self-forgiveness. Like, you're not going to pick up on everything. You're not going to see everything. Um, and things like that are just going to happen. It's a part of the human experience. But it's like, OK, once you realize that it's there, what are you going to do about it from that point moving forward? Yeah, I completely agree. I think we're not all knowing or all seeing. And I think definitely having these practices can help us and we can understand ourselves a lot better, pick up on these things a lot better. But there, I think there are always going to be blind spots for all of us. Definitely. I think that, again, like I said, I think that's part of the human experience of those blind spots. So like I think taking the time for a little bit of self-reflection here and there, having people that you trust that love you and know you that you can constantly talk to are definitely great ways to go about it to, to kind of either have them pick up on those blind spots or you pick up on them at some point. Yeah. Now, as you're taking on these habits and starting to build more of a mindful practice in your own life, so we're also wanting to impart, I think, a lot of what we're learning onto the next generation. And that's what Holistic Life Foundation is really doing an amazing job with bringing these lessons to kids at a time that can be really formative, but also you know, a scary and challenging time. Why is it so important for them to develop these skills? And with the kids in our lives, what do you think they need from us the most? I'll start with the second one. I think they need from us Mm -hmm. the most love and love consistency and actually to to hear them, like to listen to them and not, um, you know, one thing, one thing working with kids I learned very early on was that kids don't feel heard. They don't feel listened to. Mm -hmm. Like they feel like adults are just there to tell them what to do and tell them that they're doing wrong. And, you know, and that's pretty much the end of it. Like they're, the kids are saying, hey, this is wrong with me. And they're also like, okay, no, it's not A or B. You're D and F or what's wrong with you. You know what I mean? And they're like, no, that's not mm-hmm. what's wrong with me. So I think, um, yeah, I think that listing, that consistency and um, yeah, coming from a place of love with kids is also very, very important. Just embodying that love, treating them with respect and uh, showing them that you're there for them uh, are all very important things. I think it's important for kids, particularly kids that we work to get these skills like very early is because like a lot of there's a lot of chaos in their lives, whether it's mental chaos from their minds, whether it's chaos in their homes and their school and their community. And um, if you can get them to connect to like that place of inner peace within them, they have a place to retreat to because they can't a lot of them can't physically leave their environment. But if you can give them a place of inner peace that they can go to no matter what's going on, like they can constantly have a place to kind of get refuge from all that, that chaos that's around them and inside of them. And, you know, it's just something, once they learn how to get there, no one can ever take that away from them. And I think the other big thing is helping them to connect to themselves. Cause a lot of kids are totally disconnected from their inner life. Like what's going on, their thoughts, their emotions, their energy, all those things are totally disconnected from, and they're only connected to the outside world. And for a lot of kids that can be a very helpless and hopeless situation. If they just looking at their physical environment and thinking, this is all there is for me. And once kids connect to their their higher self, that you know, yeah, they, when they once they connect to their higher self, they start to feel it, and they start to feel connected to more than just their physical environment, and they can start to kind of scale their their hopes and dreams up from just what's tangible for them physically right in front of them. 
Well, I think that's beautiful because again, like sometimes you just can't change your environment. There's so much in life we can't change. And in terms of that listening, it's such a such a blind spot for a lot of adults, actually, because I think so often we just as a society just don't believe kids. We think that we know what's best for them at all times. And any kid that comes to you with a particular feeling, well, no, you shouldn't feel that. And actually, you should feel this. And this is, you know, what the experience actually is. Well, that's not necessarily true. And we don't know what's going through anyone's head at any given moment and letting them feel what they need to feel. But then also, yeah, being able to give them the skills that they can get out of the situation in a sense at a time where they really, I think, don't have the control that that they would like. They can't physically move. They can't, whatever it may be, they may, they may just not be able to get out of whatever the situation is. So in terms of that that inner peace and connecting to their higher selves, I think that too can sometimes just feel, it can feel like a really scary concept, I think, for adults as well. And with these practices, how do you, how do you help them to get to that point? Uh, so I think it's a combination of things. One, one is um, letting the process be easy and, and simple and slow, like not just like taking them from one to a hundred instantly, but like, you know, what I mean, take those baby steps, gradually introduce them to like this. So spiritual forms of meditation, that's usually what we teach to adults. A lot of people, um, it's it's something like I can't describe in words what I feel when I meditate. Like it's something that you have to experience because there are, I don't think there's really words to describe it. So I think helping people to experience it little glimpses at a time and so that they want more and they want to go back um, and they want to go deeper into that that energy and that feeling and that light. I think this is just something that's uh, a lot of people don't know how to get to. So it just seems like it seems like out there. It doesn't seem like tangible. I think, again, I was blessed with some really good meditation teachers from my dad to Acharya Peter or Swami Shankarananda from the church to Uncle Will that were really able to teach me how to get to places in my meditation that I, I read about in books that I, I love being able to show other people. It's awesome when somebody comes out of a meditation and like, whoa, okay, all right, now I get it. Um, but again, it's something that they have to experience for themselves and then they can always kind of get back to and experiment with more. I think that's so important. And I love that you are bringing a positive experience to it because I think so many of us, when we hear the word meditation, you know, whether we're new to the practice or have been a part of it for a long time, I think we have a very serious concept of what that looks like. And that when you talk about your uncle Will and how he brought fun and laughter to the experience, I think that that's such a different picture than what I think we traditionally almost stereotypically think about with yoga and mindfulness and meditation, that it's often no laughter in the situation. And I don't think that's necessarily true in reality. So in terms of that, I'd say, how do you, how do you inject fun into the experience? Because these are kids too. And so I feel like for kids, a lot of times it does need to be fun or there needs to be some enjoyment out of it. And I think for adults too, in order for us to want to come back to it. Yeah, so um, most adults, I think, like you were saying, don't have fun with their meditation practice, and they feel like it's supposed to be staunch and stern and very disciplined. I get one spiritual experience as Ali. You get one spiritual experience as Valerie. You know what I mean? What depend on what you believe, your soul comes back. But Ali and Valerie, we get one experience. Like we one time around. So you got to have fun with that with that inner journey because it's your inner journey. Like no one should be able to define it. No one should be able to put parameters on it. Like it's your inner journey. So. Why not have fun with it? Like, there's no reason for it to be boring or drab or dull. Like, Uncle Will would, like, we would, we would be going out to go do something. And you're like, Uncle Will, hey, do you want to come with us? And he's like, what do I need to go out the house for? There's a whole universe inside of me to explore. Like, I'm, I'm cool here. So getting to that understanding where it's like, yeah, there is an entire universe inside of us to explore. So 
like have some fun with it. And he would, and he would always say, if you're going to your meditation with um, like, it's feeling like a chore or kind of like a punishment or something like that along those lines, like you're not going to get the most that you can get out of it. So like go into it with an open heart and open mind and, and, and ready to have some fun. And like there are points in your, in your meditation where you might like bust out laughing because the vibration hits like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when it does feel like a chore, I mean, there's almost a sense of dread, like, hey, this is on my to-do list for today. I need to meditate for X number of minutes or hours or whatever, and I can check it off the list. And it's just right next to almost like getting the dishes out of the dishwasher and Mm -hmm. doing the other things we dread doing. And it, I think that you don't find meaning and you don't have those realizations or the, the observations about yourself if you're going into it in that way. Yeah, I think you miss out on all the the best parts of meditation if you go into it that way. Like, I I love my meditation practice. Like, it's an awesome part of my day, and I, and I have fun with it. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain thoughts that pop up that I'll kind of like laugh, that'll make me laugh, or like thinking about, or like it'll bring up a vibration from a certain situation that'll make me laugh. But I always go into it like an explorer. You know what I mean? Like, there's this whole universe inside of me, so let's let's check it out. Like, and I'll never reach the depths of it all, so like I can constantly go deeper. I can constantly go deeper. So. Why not have fun with it? Yeah, our minds are, I think, so infinite. And yeah, there's there's so much we can explore within ourselves. And I think to come at it from that positive perspective, I think that that's, I mean, and I think, again, as we're trying to instill these types of habits and practices in the next generation and teaching them new tools almost for their tool belt so that they can cope with the difficult situations or even the traumas that they might face. I mean, you're not going to want to sustain a habit if it's not bringing you that fulfillment. And if you are bringing that really, you know, I have to do this type of perspective to it. Yeah, I wouldn't want to meditate if that was the, if that was how it was. Like it felt like if it felt like that, like I, I wouldn't I don't think it's something I go back to daily or, or a couple times a day. But it's like I know how I feel for all the listeners out there. Like if you don't if you don't meditate, good experiment, like every day for a week, meditate, spend like 10 or 15 minutes meditating every single day for a week and then just stop. And then you'll notice how you feel, feel a lot different. You'll notice for that week, like you'll just feel a certain sense of calmness, a sense of stillness, a sense of connection. It'll take like the things that used to get, like get under your skin really quickly. They don't really do that as much. Like the negativity and the weight and the heaviness that you feel from the world, that'll kind of dissipate some. But this, when you stop, you'll notice that it all comes back and you won't want to really, you won't want to not meditate, honestly. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's something that I definitely notice it myself as someone who can be a little bit intermittent sometimes with that practice that when I am doing it consistently, I handle like any challenge I'll handle significantly better than I would when I when I don't. Like I have to be really, really intentional. But when I'm when I'm doing it, it like the positive thoughts are a lot more second nature because I think we have such a negativity bias for for so many things, and it's so easy to fall into that when we're not practicing that mindfulness. And something I really love that you you touched on too is that you know this was a lesson from your uncle Will, but it's something that Holistic Life Foundation practices that you are teaching these kids to be teachers and to pass this these lessons on. How exactly do you do that, and why again? is that so important? I think we do it because that's the way that Uncle Will, like that was the way that we learned was we were taught in a way that we could become teachers. So I think it was just the way that we naturally taught. And then I think we didn't really notice the effect that it was having until parents would come in and be like, yeah, you know, my daughter saw me come in the house all stressed out. And you know what I mean? Like stress domino, like stress goes downhill. Like your, your boss yells at you, you yell at your kids. Like, I mean, like that's, that's usually how it goes. And the kids got smart. 
They're like, Mom, why don't you sit down and meditate with me, breathe with me? You look stressed out. And then they wouldn't, you know what I mean? They weren't getting yelled at. Or the, the grandmother might have a stomach issue, showed her breath to ease her stomach. So, like, they were, the parents were coming and telling us. They realized, like, wow, we teach these kids to be teachers. And we we were just using it to, like, they could lead the practices in front of the class, like, to, just to build their self-esteem and stuff. But they took it another step, and they were going and they were going home, and they were using these practices with their brothers, their sisters, their parents, their grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody. They were sharing these practices with everyone around them uh, because they knew that they alleviated some form of suffering, and they knew how to teach them, and they felt comfortable teaching them. They knew the benefits. They knew when to use them, knew the practicality of them. So it was just like it was a natural fit. And I think for us, like we even got even more intentional about it once we realized that that's what was going on because it was like, you know, we go to school, work with 200 kids. Cool. There's 200 kids we've helped. But if we can turn those 200 kids into teachers, then the ripples are like huge from there. Yeah, that's so true that we almost have no idea of how much, like how exponential this type of change can be. And I think when we focus, I think first on having that self-awareness and developing these practices for ourselves, we don't realize how much that I think compounds and can affect the people around us, but then to be teaching it to kids. And I think kids are also so excited, like, and this may be generalizing too, but kids are often so excited to share what they're learning and to show you whatever they're doing. I remember speaking with some someone who they have a similar practice, not so much with yoga, but teaching some mindfulness techniques in San Francisco, a little bit more with like with improv exercises. So it's a little bit different of a practice, but a lot of times the kids too, they're like their behavior in school is changing and they're teaching these things to the other kids around them. And they're finding that it helps with bullying. It helps with so many of these different things and just dynamics in their own household because they're wanting to share and yeah, I think I think it can really heal more than just the one person when we're doing it that way. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think that what you're doing, there's so, there's so much power in all of it and how much it can help, um, again, this next generation. And I'd love to know a little bit with the organization, with, with all the work you guys have been doing, because you guys have been doing this, again, you said since 2002 was when the classes, I think, first started. Any stories you'd like to share about some of what you've seen and some of the transformation in, in the kids and how it's impacted them? Yeah, I'm going to try to stay away because there's some there's some great stories in the book. Uh, so I'm going to try to stay away from those. One of my favorite things about the Holistic Life Foundation is that at the point where the students that we had worked with back in like 2002, 2003, like they were in fifth grade in 2002. They went through high school. They went, some of them went to college, some of them didn't. But when they started showing back up to come teach because the program had such an impact on them and their the way that they lived their lives and their own personal uh meditation practice and yoga practice, breathwork practice, that they wanted to come back and, and do the same for other kids. And uh, I think that was like a really awesome moment was like when the, the kids that had started off as little fifth graders were young adults and they were doing the same thing for other kids. And it, it was beautiful to see. I love that. I mean, because you know how much of an impact it had to have for them to want to pay it forward and and keep those lessons going, just how impactful that is. So I think that's beautiful. And I really love the work that you're doing. For anyone in general who is wanting to give back through mentorship and they want to help with kids who are going through whatever difficult circumstances they may be going through. Just for anyone new to mentorship, um, what advice do you have for them to really make that impact and for them to be a good mentor, I should say? Um, I say a couple of things. One is um, meet whoever you're trying to mentor, like meet them where they are. A lot of times people want certain things for people they're going to mentor, have certain expectations of what's going to come out of the situation. But 
if you meet them where they are and you authentically listen to them, uh, they'll tell you what's wrong and you can help them from there and not where you want to help them from. Just come from a place of understanding and love. Everybody's different. Your struggles aren't the same as mine. Mine aren't the same as yours. Uh, but everybody's struggling in their own way. So I think if you can come from that place of understanding and love, then, then that helps out a lot. Uh, the consistency is key. Um, a lot of people don't, and particularly in underserved and traumatized communities, they don't have consistent people in their lives that are constantly showing up and constantly there for them. Uh, so I think that consistency is very, very important. And I think coming from a place of empowerment and not that whole like savior mentality thing, like you, if you come from a place of like, I'm going to lift this person up and allow them to sit and allow them to save themselves instead of me swooping in and trying to save them. I think those are a few important things to keep in mind when you want to mentor someone. Yeah, I think I think that's so much more empowering to yeah be able to be that person that they can turn to, but giving them the tools that they can that they can save themselves in that sense. Not that they maybe need to be saved, but whatever it may be for them to be that person for themselves in a sense. And, you know, it reminds me of, I hadn't heard the the expression before that you talked about in the book, having a network of weak ties almost of adults. Can you explain that a little bit and why that's important? Yeah. So um, like a lot of uh, inner cities before crack hit real hard, the neighborhood I grew up in, I had older brothers and sisters that they weren't blood related to me, but they're they're my older brothers and sisters to this day. And um, they were just as influential in raising me as my parents were. Like I had awesome parents, but like my oldest bro- my older brothers and sisters from my neighborhood were people that loved me, people that cared about me, people that wanted to see me do my best in life. And um, I think, again, once crack hit, like that was kind of stripped away. And um, I think that's a part of what's missing in a lot of underserved communities is that, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of programs. There's a lot of people doing good work in communities. I feel like there's a lot of mentoring programs and after school programs that are popping up, which is good to kind of reintroduce that. But for a while it was gone in some communities, it's still gone. But I think it's important uh, just because some people don't have parents that are there for them all the time. It could be for a lot of different reasons, whether it's their parents are working a lot or they might, some one of them might not be in the home, or somebody might have passed away, or somebody might be in the, in the justice system. You know what I mean? There's a lot of different reasons for it. So like I feel like having those adults in your life that care about you, it does something for holding you accountable. Like a lot of people, a lot of a lot of young people don't have anyone to be accountable to, so they just mess up, and there's no there's no repercussions for it. Like they can mess up as often as they want to, and there's nothing. That, there's there's no repercussions for it. So it's like when you have someone that you're accountable to you're going to think twice before you make that bad decision because you don't want that person like you mean having that conversation with you so i think it's i think there's a lot of a lot of different reasons for it yeah i think even thinking about the other parent in the like you know someone else's parent in the neighborhood that was still you know they were looking out for you even if your parents like they weren't outside whatever it was that having having those other people that cared about your safety and your health and that you were going to be okay i think that there's I think such a safety in that as a kid. And when you don't have that, that can be so scary. And yeah, and and I hadn't even thought of in the in the book, you talk a little bit about even just the, the commute times for parents. So even when you have two working parents, if they have a long commute, you have a lot less time that you're with them. And I think that can that can be really, really tough, even if you have two loving parents. Yeah, it can. I mean, I know my, my mom and dad worked a lot, like uh, particularly after after they got divorced. Like there are some very, very influential people in my life that aren't my parents that were their friends that would like pick us up after school. Like my dad, one of my dad's best childhood friends, uh, Melvin Watkins and his wife, Phyllis, like they would pick us up from school, like help us with our homework. Uh, when our dad had basketball practice, like we'd go to his house, like 
make dinner, help us with our homework, play, watch a movie, you know what I mean? Just hang. Like, and they didn't have to do that, but it was just like that was one of my dad's best friends. My uncle Reggie lived with us for a little while. He'd do his mail route, and he'd come and help me and my brother with our home. You know what I mean? Like, Daryl Bolden lived around the corner from us. Me and my brothers, he's like me and my brother's big brother. Like, he was, like, there was just certain, there were people that were around that helped us during the, those times where our parents had to work late or, or things were going on. And a lot of a lot of kids don't have that. So they're just kind of at home, sitting around. And a lot of that's, that's when a lot of kids get in trouble those after school hours. Yeah. Well, I think that what you're doing with the organization too has to fill that gap for a lot of kids that, you know, maybe like during during that time too. So I would imagine that, you know, having you guys and the, and the teachers and I'm sure that these uh, – I, I hate to say kids because I'm probably about the same age or, you know, ra- around the same age, these adults that went through the program in 2002 that are now coming back and teaching it, that know what they've been through or they, they've they gone through the same program and they've seen the work that it can do in shaping their own lives, like how um, how much that has to really help the kids who are, who are going through it now to be able to look to this new network of, of adults in their lives. Yeah, I think I think it's necessary to have those type of adults in your life. I think I don't think kids thrive without it. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think it's impossible for a kid to thrive. And then and I feel like they don't know how to be, they don't know how to be when they become an adult without those types of adults in their life. Mm-hmm. So another question I have for you, just in general with the organization, I think you guys have done some really amazing things. You just put out a book that I'm going to ask you about as well uh, to, to share a little bit with the listeners. But in general for the organization, what's next as you continue to grow and serve these kids? Um, so we're looking at expanding outside of Baltimore. We just did a commitment with the Clinton Global Initiative. So we're moving our Mindful Moment program. We're moving to five other cities. We're actually just in Philly today. Uh, Philadelphia, doing a site visit with an organization there uh, to see if that was going to be one. I think it's going to be one of our potential sites. We're looking for five or four more cities to expand that Mindful Moment program to over the next two years. Uh, we'll actually train young people, um, when I say young people, young adults from those cities to actually facilitate the Mindful Moment program in those schools. Um, and we'll work with the Trauma Research Foundation. Um, the, we'll do a study on the effectiveness of the program, how it's helping kids to heal trauma, um, school-based outcomes, cognitive measures. and But I think the other cool thing it's going to do is it's going to do a study. It's going to check the effectiveness on the people that we train. Because uh, the people that we train for the program uh, that become end up becoming facilitators, uh, having that personal practice ends up changing their lives. But we want to be able to put, have some type of measurement for that one. We're looking for a second city for a satellite program. And the book you'll hear us talk about Aquasasne a lot. But um, we're looking for a second city to be our satellite location. So it might be one of those five cities. It might be somewhere else. But uh, that's something we're we're looking for. And um, yeah, just continuing to um, spread the word and help people help themselves. I think that's so amazing. And, you know, you hear about, and I hear anecdotally, but about how almost like they call it like a near peer mentor, almost having someone that not necessarily like they're maybe a few years older They're and they, they are that adult, but they, you know, the kids can see themselves maybe in this person and how impactful that can be. So I think to have that research behind it now too, to be doing these studies, it's going to, I think, tell us what we already know that it is such a beneficial thing. And then you'll be able to see just how much I think too, to put those numbers behind it. It's important. I mean, the practice has been around for thousands of years. And they've been working for all this time, but some people want to see those concrete numbers. So like you give them to them and then they, they can't, ref- they can't, they can't argue with it after that. Yeah. 
Well, I think this is so, so cool. And I'm really excited to see how the program grows and definitely follow along on your journey and on the organization's journey. Before we get into the book and where listeners can find and connect with the with the organization, I'd love to ask you as well, just a few rapid fire questions that we ask all of the guests. Okay. The first one, you know, we've been getting into a few of these, I think, with the yoga practice, but in general, what would you say is your top wellness tip? Take some time to go into your light every day. The world is very stressful. And I think you got to get some, you got to have your spiritual base every day to be um, healthy on all levels. Yeah. I love that. I think again, you know, you, you were talking about how we, we default, I think a lot of times toward that negative and how important it is to really be intentional about the positive. And yeah, I think that just shapes so many of the decisions we make physical wellness, spiritual and mental, just everything that we do. Mm-hmm. On a very different topic, as wellness and wanderlust, I'd love to know where your favorite travel destination might be. So a lot of things pop in my head when you say that, but I think just because the people that I go with, um, every year we go down to the Outer Banks for a week in the summer, and it's just the people I go with. It's like me, my sons, my brother, his girlfriend, their daughter, and my mom, and two two of our best friends and their family. So it's like, we're all in a house. The house is a pool and a hot tub. We're right across the street from the beach and we eat all our meals together, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like a good time. So it's like, we, we even have a group text called, um, it's time for a celebration. And uh, like, you know, like we're constantly texting people pictures of our lives and what's going on. And then we start to count down usually around the first of the year. And it's just like the highlight of the summer. Like it's awesome. So I think if I wasn't going with those people, I could probably pick somewhere else. But with that group of people, definitely the Outer Banks. Oh, I think the people that you're with, I mean, that's that makes the trip where it can break the trip. And yeah, I think and, and I, I've also I mean, I've heard great things about the Outer Banks as well. I've never been and I've I have a friend that um, that his family goes as well. And then, yeah, to be there with the people that you love, that you have an amazing time with. I mean, that always makes the trip. So I love that. Now, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would be probably blue whale. Uh, because the earth is like 70% water and, you know, they can go to the depths of the ocean. Like they can communicate from like halfway around the planet with like their, with, with the sounds they make. So I want to see, I want to know what's in the ocean. And I feel like that would be a good opportunity to explore the ocean. Oh yeah. There's so much we don't know down there and yeah, that would be so cool. I don't think we've gotten that answer before either. All right. Okay. What type of stuff do you usually get? We get a lot of eagles and a lot of, um, or really like birds of prey. And we get a mm. lot of, we get a lot of large cats. Okay. Yeah. Those would be, I think the main ones we, we get a few. There's, yeah. There's just so much ocean. Like I want to, I want, I want to, I want to be able to explore. I want to know what's down there. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, it's, it is really like its own planet. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could master a completely new skill, what would that be? A completely new skill? I'd love to be able to fly an airplane. I love that. Our guest for the week before this airs is an airline pilot, actually. Oh, really? Or, yeah, my dad. We did a an Ask My Dad anything. What skill did he want? He wanted to learn a language. Okay. That's where my mind was going, too. But I was thinking, like, it would be cool if I could just fly an airplane. Oh, I think so, too. I, I mean, you could go so many places, and it's something that so many people can't do. And, oh, my gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so my final question for you from our rapid fire questions, and this can be professional, this can be for the organization, this can be personal, but what's next on your bucket list? Something that me and my brother talked about for a while is like spending like two weeks, uh, like backpacking through Peru, because there's a bunch of cool stuff Mm -hmm. in that we've always wanted to see, but 
Uh, we've included my oldest son, Asuma, in that in that backpacking adventure. I don't know if he knows yet, but we want to pick like two weeks, fill a backpack, get a list of places to go, and just uh, go and see them all. Oh, that would be so amazing. And how cool that would be for your son, too. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Like, he's, um, he's a sharp kid, very spiritual dude, so I think he could have fun with us down there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, that is such an amazing, I mean, what a beautiful place to Machu Picchu. What would you do? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Machu Picchu, um, the Nazca lines, like the Inca stones, like Titicaca, like we've got a bunch of places we'd love to see down there. Oh yeah. That is complete bucket list for me too. I, I love that. And I think there's something about being in nature and being in such a beautiful place like that, that there's something meditative in that sense too. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Like when I'm, I mean, I'm a Taurus total earth sign. So like I get grounded in nature really, really quickly and easily. And I know if I'm off, I just need to go get out. And I mean, like I probably own like five or six tents. Like I love camping. I love being out in the woods. I love connected to nature. It's just like my, my place. Yeah. I'm not as much of a camper, but and I'm in Florida where it's like a little bit too hot, but I will say, so I'm, um, I'm Virgo and then Capricorn rising. So a lot of earth in my chart as well. And anytime I'm stressed out, like I will just go for even just a walk around the lake and like I see the ducks and I just have a smile on my face and it just completely puts me in a different, like if I see any animal, I think it'll put me in a different place, but also just, I think even just seeing water. And I know there's science behind that too, but getting grounded in nature, there's something just so peaceful and restorative with that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like such an amazing bucket list item and and I'm excited for you and definitely I will have to hear all about that trip when that happens. I'll definitely let you know all about it. Please do. Before I let you go, and again, I want to thank you so much for everything that you are doing with the Holistic Life Foundation. I think that this is such an inspiring story of everything you're doing to to help these kids and in turn, as they're teaching, again, it helps their families, it helps the people around them and I think it's just so amazing. why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how they can connect with the organization and a little bit more about your book as well? Yeah. So um, if you want to connect with the Holistic Life Foundation, our website's an easy way to do it. It's hlfinc.org. We have a pretty heavy presence on Instagram. It's just look up Holistic Life Foundation. We're right on there. Twitter, not too much, but I'd say between our website and our um, and, and Instagram, you'll, you can know everything that's going on with us. Uh, you can go to our website and sign up for our newsletter and you know everything we've got going on. Yeah, I, th- I think those are the easiest ways to get in contact with the Holistic Life Foundation. And the book, available I mean, anywhere you can buy books online, but um, definitely go out and support your local bookstores. Most of the time I'm lazy and I get my books on Amazon just because they show up at my door. But we've been definitely trying to push people to go to local bookstores and um, if the book's not there, get them to order it and purchase it from local bookstores. I love that. I know that there's a website where you can find like what local bookstores and what independent bookstores are selling certain books. And I can definitely find that and link that in the show notes too. That'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I've truly been enjoying the book. And um, so I can very highly recommend that as well. I think there are a lot of really, uh, it's it's an inspiring story, but there are a lot of really great practices for the adults as well. Even if you don't have any kids in your life yet to be imparting this on, I think these lessons for First and foremost, we can use them to become more self-aware and to show up for ourselves, I think, in the world too. So I really am just so inspired by everything you're doing and want to thank you for sharing your story with us and really for sharing your time and your energy with us today. Thank you. It was a great interview. I enjoyed the conversation. I am truly inspired by the work of the Holistic Life Foundation and really enjoyed my conversation with Ali. I'm at a time in my life personally where I'm looking to get more intentional with myself and 
what I do with my energy. So this interview could not have come at a better time as I work to get quieter and bring back more of a focus on mindfulness in the year ahead. There were a lot of really great takeaways from our conversation and I truly cannot wait to see what's next for the Holistic Life Foundation. I absolutely loved this conversation. And again, I think that the work that they're doing is so inspiring and so incredible. So please be sure to check them out. I've linked all of their information in the show notes. I also encourage you to order a copy of their book, Let Your Light Shine. I've really enjoyed the book myself, and I actually have a second copy that I would love to send to a listener free of charge. So if this conversation really resonated with you, please feel free to send me an email at Valerie at wellnessandwanderlust.net or a DM on Instagram at wellnessandwanderlustblog to let me know what parts of the conversation really stuck with you. And I will choose a lucky winner in the new year to receive that extra copy and I will send it your way. So again, feel free to reach out to me if you would like to be considered for that. Thank you again for tuning in and for being a part of this incredible community. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. If you have a topic you'd like us to explore in a future episode, send it my way. One of the best ways you can lend your support to the show, as I say from week to week, is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that others can find the show better, so that others know what you think of the show, and so that I know what you think of the show as well. It makes such a difference for podcasters when you leave a rating and review for their show. So if not mine, please, you know, this holiday season, be sure to leave a review for a podcast that you really enjoy. I hope you all have a wonderful day. I hope you're having a fantastic holiday season and I will see you soon.